has a second parcel here and it's not ringing enough for me. Well, let's gavel this to order. Um, uh, Yuko Asada and Mia Gormandy Benjamin, uh, it's awesome to see you both. And um, this is a real treat for me just because I get to talk to friends of mine who I know and, and colleagues and, and people I don't know. But um, this is the first episode of the Pan and Tune podcast uh, with Yuko and Josh, and you are our first illustrious guest. And um, I want us, to, want us to start off a little bit with some context behind what the podcast is. And Yuko, I believe, if I'm not mistaken... You and I have been chatting a bit, but the actual idea for a podcast, I think, came from you. No, um, no, 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 no. You I'm going to blame you. Know, I think you mentioned about it, like, um, last summer after I was on your podcast. Oh, okay. And you mentioned about, like, uh, possibly talking to different people in Pan from different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I was involved in another project, and there was just so much going on in 2020, as we <laughs> all know. Um but I did contact you uh, recently at the end of uh, February mm -hmm. after being on a, a panel discussion for NSSBE conference. And I listened to Andre White and Sheldon Twaits, uh, The Avengers Corner. And I checked out a symposium that was held at uh, the University of West Indies in Trinidad and Tobago. And one of the session was on PAM manufacturing or uh, PAM business. And that really, really made me think so, so much about what's going on uh, globally. And I also started wondering about my own identity. So, you know, I call Mia, you know, I call you, Josh. And I was like, oh, you know, let's uh, maybe we can, you know, talk about it, you know, have guests. And yeah, so, yeah, that's how it well, started. I, I appreciate you sort of remind, refreshing my memory there. I always like to pretend. I mean, I just assume every good idea is somebody else's. So I, I just assumed it was yours. But oh, no. when you, you mentioned words, I, uh, the word identity, and I'll say for me, one of the things in this last year, and I don't, you know, Mia, I don't know if, if this resonates at all, but I, you know, we've had a lot of time at home just staring at screens and you start to see everybody now has a thought on what is right what is wrong what is good what is bad and i just i kind of got inside my head a lot and i think uh, obviously around the george floyd murder there was a lot of just society sort of erupted all for reasons i are absolutely yes absolutely it was it was insane but this idea the idea of like where you're from what you have authority over what you can say with you know what what is your identity and like there's part of me that identifies as a steel drummer but i was born in a cornfield and like there's only so far that can take me in terms of where i have authority but i've been very fortunate to work with people like cliff and go to trinidad and and all of those sorts of things so yeah this idea of identity is complicated and i'm curious mia um maybe just to get things rolling can you just refresh me and Yuko about where, you know, baby Mia, like what, you know, and, and I say that sort of like you have a baby now. And so now you have, you know, little tiny, tiny baby that you made and they're going to go on a similar path that maybe you had. And I'm curious, can you take us back a little bit and give us the nickel and dime tour of like what brought you to Cliff? And then maybe we can sort of go from there. Okay. Um, well, I was born and raised in Trinidad and Tobago um, in Belmont to be specific which is just a, an area of Port of Spain. Um, and I started playing the steel pan when I was five years old because my older brother, my parents 
bought a steel fan for my older brother and they brought a, an instructor to teach him but he was not interested at all in the fan and instead I was kind of reaching over my head um, to play this instrument that I guess I thought was amazing I don't know <laughs> and the lessons for him eventually turned into lessons for me um, so you know in primary school and secondary school growing up I entered a number of competitions actually the first competition I entered I was six years old and it was a competition for at my mom's office where they they had all the kids come and do like a talent competition so there were kids from I think maybe from five years old all the way up to like teenager oh. and I won that competition and my parents were like what <laughs> you know? I think they were surprised, you know, it's like, oh, we are probably onto something here, you know. Um, and then they, they helped support and push um, my life of music. Um, so, you know, growing up for me, I had a very busy life because I had to balance school and gigs, um, solo performances. And I was a stage side member of Trinidad All Stars, uh, which I joined when I was nine years old. So um, from very early on, I was taught how to balance, you know, between work, I'm sorry, not work, but, you know, gigging, school, um, not performances as a soloist, performances with Trinidad All-Stars and performances for my school because I was also in the school, school bands as well. Um, so, yeah, I remember just a couple of years ago finding one of my schedules that I created when I was about 14 years old and I had about three or four gigs a week, you know, oh. so, so like three or four of those would be all stars gigs because that, at that time they were gigging every weekend and then I would have one or two solo performances weekly. Sorry, you know, so this is the stage side band for all stars. Yes, right? for all stars. Stage Could you just side, yeah. explain for like, like I don't think I understood. I used to think people were saying stateside. Oh no, and, stage, stage. No, I know, side. but that wasn't <laughs> like till I I started teaching at NYU and working with Panorama bands in Brooklyn. Oh right. And, and uh -huh. hearing that word, and I was just afraid to be like, "Are you saying state or stage? What do you mean?" And can you just uh -huh. explain what a stage side band is? Oh yeah, sure. So steel bands in Trinidad and Tobago have two sides. We have a panorama side, which are you know, which are members of the band who come out solely for panorama, and that can be 150 players, you know. But then there's a core Trinidad All Stars um, steel band that comprises 30 to 50 members, and they play throughout the year. So the stage side is the core. Are those core members that perform gigs? throughout the year. Sometimes we go on tour. I've been on tour with Trinidad Allstars to Australia. You know, sometimes they, you know, we perform for engagements, pan jams, you know, sometimes weddings, you know, so it, it, you know, just all throughout the year, those types of gigs representing the steel orchestra. If you're performing at those gigs, that's not Panorama, you're on the stage side and it functions throughout the year. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. So I, just, I want that, that official sort of definition of what a stage side out be just to help dummies like me who are coming <laughs> might have no idea what that is. No, it's fine. So yeah, so I, I was on the stage side and stuff like that. And then um, when I was 15, I performed at a concert that just happened to have Larry Snyder. And you know, this entire time I used to tell the story, I thought Cliff was the one who was in the audience, but I found out that it was Liam. Oh, so I've told this story like several times and I'm like, oh, Cliff and Larry Snyder were in the audience and they heard me perform and they, you know, said, oh, you need to come to NIU. But it was Liam in the audience, not Cliff. 
<laughs> my father told me this like you know like just recently because i think i was saying something and he was like no it was liam <laughs> i was like what <laughs> because i didn't actually speak with them like you know my father was the one that was really talking to them you know for some reason i thought cliff said that he met you then but yeah yeah and now come to think about it i met cliff at niu oh okay i spoke to cliff on the phone several times before i went to niu Mm. you know in preparing to come but i think i met him officially in person at niu at the airport and you, <laughs> and, and you met larry you met dr dr larry snyder yes I, I, yes i met dr larry snyder at that event in trinidad it was an award ceremony and okay. i performed i think uh flight to the bumblebee and um summertime and it's so funny i did not want to go to that performance at all because i was sick <laughs> And my parents were like, you have to go. You already said yes. You have to stick to your word. You know, it doesn't matter if you're sick. You have, you know, so I was already like, ah, I don't want to, you know, but I've always been taught, you know, once you go on stage, you have to leave all that stuff off, you know, off the stage. So I performed and thankfully I went through with it because Dr. Ari Snyder and Liam Teague, they were both in the audience. And that's how I came up to University of Akron the next year. Okay. Yeah. And that was prior to you studying at NIU. That was. You yes, I was so. still in secondary school. Yeah, I was still I was still in secondary school, and uh, so this would have been. Let me see. So I I did the performance I think in two thousand four, mm-hmm. like maybe late in the year, and then two thousand five April, I came to University of Akron and NIU as a guest, mm-hmm. and then I started attending NIU in September in August two thousand five. So I was finishing up secondary school at that time. So sorry, yeah. that, that seemed like a very long way to tell you how I got the cliff. <laughs> no, no, that's 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 it. Right. Yuko, do you uh, turn the floor over to you here? That uh, yeah, I remember meeting Mia and Mario, her her father. Yeah, at that time, and yeah, everybody in the audience were in awe. Like we were like, whoa, who's that? You know, young lady, you know, performing the pan, and uh, yeah, and that was Mia. <laughs> yep, yep. Well, Mia, whenever you were. Like what? I, I don't want to presume. Like I think if when I was, how old were you? You were sixteen or fifteen at the time. What? When? When? What? When, when I you, started at NIU. When you came to Akron and then eventually to to the next year to I, NIU. I think I was sixteen already. Yeah. I mean, I if someone had come to me and said, Josh, you know, you're really good at what you do. You know, we know that you were born here in Dover, Ohio. We'd love for you to come to Trinidad and work here. And study there like at 16 i think i was more worried about like my armpit hairs that weren't growing in yet like i can't even imagine let alone picking up and moving to another country but also another country where yes the language is similar but not exactly like there's like it's there's a different culture like what as a 16 year old what was that how are those conversations with your folks or even inside your own head about like where you were headed Hmm. I don't know. I feel as though everything just sort of moved and I just moved with it. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I don't know what I was really thinking at the time, but I do remember my first moments at NIU and a number of people did not understand what I was saying. Like nobody <laughs> understood me. My accent, you know, they just didn't, they couldn't get it. You know, like, and I tried to communicate to the bus driver, asking him where I want to go. He doesn't understand what I'm saying. You know, and I think that's how uh, Sharissa Granger and I, uh, she was also a student there, kind of became friends too, because she came a semester before me and she's from Aruba. 
And she was like, she knew, like she went through this already and knew how to say certain things to, for people to understand. So she would have to be like my translator, even though I'm speaking English, you know. <laughs> well, so, I'm, I've been around Trinidadians enough, but I, there's still moments now where like, I, like if Kendall and Jerrion are talking to each other, I don't understand anything. And I'm, I'm, I'm not like there. I used to be like, can you guys tell me what you're like? And now I just am like, I, I'm not going to stop somebody from the way they're talking. If I don't understand it, you know, I, I just need to spend, I need to spend more time with the language. It's like, I can't go to Spain and be like, can you guys slow down for me? Like, may, may yamo Josh. Like, that's not, that's not always how it works. But like, what were some things when you came to, to, to DeKalb, like when you say that you had to you know, so you needed a translator. Like, what were some things that you had to change about the way you spoke? Well, I had to slow down a lot. Mm. Um, um, I fortunately didn't bother me as much because there were people who did understand me, like Yuko. Mm. You know, Yuko was there. For Cliff the and Liam. Cliff, Liam, Sion Gomez was there, Sophia Supero. Mm. And so there were other number of other Trinidadians there and people who were used to hearing Trinidadians speak. Yeah. You know, so... I didn't feel completely out of everything. Um, but what I had to do was um, slow down my speech and pronounce my words. <laughs> you know, I have to, you know, kind of make sure that every word I said, I enunciated, you know, as best as I could. Um, because I was also kind of fed up um, in, in my classes. You know, I'd, I would go like days without speaking and then a teacher would ask a question and I would answer and then the entire class would just turn around and stare at me, you know, like, what? <laughs> you know, <laughs> so in those moments, I'm like, oh, right. Yeah, they, I guess they didn't know that I wasn't from, <laughs> from the United States. But yeah, eventually over time, I kind of learned how to, um, you know, speak in a way, not change my accent, but mm -hmm. speak in a way that people can understand me. And it became important when I had to teach, you know, because I can't stand in front of a classroom or in front of panists from the United States and expect them to adjust to me. Kind of like what you were saying, Josh, right? It's like, you know, because I am teaching them, now I am forced to have to speak in a way that they understand what I'm saying, you know? Uh, that, make, that makes sense as you're saying it, but just like the sort of the, uh, again, like the part of me that I'm, I'm trying to check about my own, when I'm in a space that is not, doesn't look like me, I feel like I want to defer as much as I can to the room and be like, okay, I don't have no idea where they, what they said, but I can see everybody starting at measure 35 and they're playing softer. So I'm going to try that. Like, <laughs> right. That's okay. But you know, there, there's a point at which like, that's actually not doing anybody any good. I need to raise my hand and be like, can, can you just say that again for me? Like, mm -hmm. um, but, you know, you don't, you want to be careful. Like, I, you don't want to be non-Trinidadian. I mean, that's like part of, that's who you are. And if my students come to NYU and they play with phase two or something, like, or they play, let's say they play with, you know, whoever. Like, Bugsy's not going to be like, they can't raise their hand and be like, oh, Bugsy, can you slow down a little bit for me? Like, that's not, that's not going to happen. And so, like, in some respects, I feel like it's good training to be, to be in a room with, with yeah. folks who, you know, speak English, but. Not the kind you do. And and that has and that has happened because actually I remember um Sion Gomez. He was a grad he's a grad assistant and I was doing my bachelor's and we were coming from a gig. Um and I used to feel bad. We were coming from a gig and we were setting up trying to set up the room. So Sion walks in and he's like, All right, everybody, set up one time, one time, one time. <laughs> and and he walks out and I'm like, Yeah, 
you know, but I realized I'm the only one that started moving and everybody just stood there like, what? <laughs> oh, because we didn't understand a lot of people. I understand what one time meant. Yeah. Turn out one time means now. Right. Mm. Do it now. Mm. You know, <laughs> immediately. You know, so, and he said it with such urgency, but nobody understood. <laughs> and it was kind of funny because then I was like, that means no. <laughs> so, like, I can't explain. So, they were still, you know, they were definitely still getting the Trinidadian in us, you know. Um, but, you know, so it's still, of course, a small adjustment of making sure that, that we're clear as well. Yeah, I have a question. So, what was it like to come to NIU and learn? to play in at NIU steel band in comparison to, you know, all stars and other bands in Trinidad, what was different? Actually, um, the first time I played in the NIU steel band, I was like in shock because, you know, I'm, I came from Trinidad, you know, I've, I've been playing all stars for many years, you know, I've been doing a lot of playing, but we never really read a lot in Trinidad. So even though I did my grade eight theory exams and, you know, I understand theory and I understand music, sight reading was always a weakness of mine, you know. So when I got to NIU, it was just like, oh, here are the scores. All right, let's go. One, two, three, four, boom, band starts. I'm like, oh my God, you know, like, I was in, like, in complete shock. I'm like, oh my gosh, this entire steel band is going to show me up. You know, like I felt, you know, like I was behind, you know, immediately coming to NIU. You know, and, but that's how I learned to sight read, you know, because it was like by force. <laughs> it's like, here is this call, get it done, you know. And I think, um, and I used to, but I was performing in Chicago the first year that I came. I think y'all had a gig in Chicago. I think for the carnival, Chicago carnival. Yeah, right, right. And, and Cliff came and said, oh, here's a stack of scores. This is what we're playing on, you know, Saturday, whatever day it was. And I just looked at the scores like, what? So the old steel band had time. Of course, you all had time to practice. And it was, it was pieces that you all did the semester before. Right. But I was new, you know. <laughs> so, and if I, I mean, if I was able, I could do something like that now. But I definitely could not have done something like that, you know, when I first started at NIU. So my experience definitely now coming in was, oh, my gosh, all, all of these members can play. And not only can they play, they can read. You know, so I need to step up my game, make sure I could read. So... Yeah. Yeah. And something else I wonder is, so, you know, what was it like to hear, you know, a U.S. steel band playing Calypso and Soka? Like, huh. yeah. it was different, but I don't think I just, I don't think I was judging it in any kind of way. I think um, because I was so focused on trying to read properly, <laughs> I didn't really didn't really think about something like that until maybe months into being, you know, at NIU. But because maybe it wasn't, it wasn't, I don't know, it just didn't register at least. Mm -hmm. So it's not until I got really comfortable with reading and playing is when I started to self-analyze. Oh, okay, so we're playing Calypso and this is the groove and, you know, that's a little different to what we do in Trinidad. And, you know, so those thoughts didn't come until probably months after, you know, start when those thoughts uh, i'm sorry to stick on it but like i want to drill down a little bit when those thoughts did be just i mean because you are i can understand you being insecure about the sight reading thing and being like oh my god i gotta i got you know and so you can just get inside your head and you're just working but as soon as you right. you know mia you're 
you're a virtuoso at the instrument. So like, there's a point at which you're like, okay, cool. I'm done with the sight reading. And then you look back and you're like, things start to register to you. Like what were some things that, that again, like I, I want to be careful of any value judgments, like this is good and this is bad, but like, what were things that were like, when you say, oh, that's a Calypso beat, but that's not how we would do it in Trinidad. What were some concrete examples of that where, I mean, even at a place like NYU where Cliff, I mean, one of the horse's mouths, you know, like he's, he's one of the OGs. And even at a place like NYU, there's things that I think because it's at an institution, Cliff, there are some limitations that come into play. You can't just walk into NIU and rehearse till three in the morning for right. seven hours because kids have classes, you know, like you could do with the all-stars. Like what were some things that were different for you as you started noticing them? I think the first thing that I actually noticed was the strums. So even though the strumming pattern is the same or similar to what we'd play in Trinidad, I feel as though it's very metronomical. Otherwise, it's like, bam, 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 bam. You know, it's like very uh, strict. And I think in Trinidad, it's not as strict. There's like a, there's like a relax, it's like a relaxation to it where it's not necessarily um, fitting exactly where the music where the music score says it should. You know, so there's a sort of also like a, a like a light accent, like a uh 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 uh, uh you know, as opposed to ta 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 ta. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think the first the the first thing that I noticed was the strumming, you know, where it was I think I think maybe some of the members were like, okay, this is what's in the score, so this is what I have to play, and I have to play it. You know, they practice with a metronome. You know, the concept of practicing with a metronome to me only came about when I came to NIU. You know, and I remember Liam saying, you have to practice with a metronome. I'm like, I have, I have time, and you know, I could, you know, I could. Like, you have to practice with a metronome. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that that was a new thing for me, and I think having that sort of strict approach is sort of changes the groove you know of the music and it's not i mean i mean i'm not saying it's bad or good you know i'm just saying it's a difference you know that that i observed that's the first difference that i observed when you oh sorry go ahead yuka oh, i was just gonna say so for somebody like me or somebody from outside of you know trinidad and tobago when you all would say groove and feel we would be like what does that mean like yeah. how do we play that you know and the best way for us to capture that was to listen to you guys, you know, like listen to how you play, how you express, you know? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. yeah, that was something that was difficult to capture. When you mentioned the strum, Mia, I was, I was finishing up to some teaching with Kendall Williams after Princeton. We had a class this afternoon and we were talking about, uh, he's talking about wanting to think about what, like what could be a steel band method book. And the first words out of his mouth were like, we got to document the all-stars strum. <laughs> and we have to show people what it is and like show where the he was talking all about the like little subtleties within the strum of the all-stars like that's not even like looking at how trinidadian strum that's like one right. band that mm -hmm. when they start playing i mean i remember being at the icp competition in 2015 and i think the low drum player in the engine room started playing mm -hmm. something and the whole crowd just went bonkers because <laughs> they know what that means and and it's just, you, there's something that's hard to translate. You can't write it on paper. It's like when Trinidadians play triplets. Like, you can't write that. You know? And that's awesome. And we need to 
I wish we could write. I wish we had a notation for that. That like every time we write a triplet, you write like Trinidad Relax. style. Yeah. <laughs> Trinidad style. Well, other than the strum, I mean, what for me, I feel like one of the things, and I'm curious for you, Mia, because you've done a lot of master classes. You go traveling around and you see different bands play. In addition to that strum thing, the thing for me as an educator that specifically at NYU, that's been the biggest sort of reality check for me in terms of feel is, you know, for the first five or six years at NYU, it's like we could play a tune, we would do a reggae tune, and then we would do a soca, we would whatever, we never did any panoramas initially. And I'd be like, okay, we have a steel band. It's not, why does it not sound like a thing? And then, you know, and then I worked with BSO for the ICP competition in 2015 and had been working with Kendall a little bit uh, in Brooklyn, and Jerrion Williams comes in the room, and I'm like, oh, like the engine room, what the hell am I doing? And I feel like I approached it because of my Western classical studies, similarly to the way an orchestra is approached. It's like the percussions in the back and we'll deal with them only if we hear them in the wrong place, you know, like that's all we're going to yeah. talk about. But then you dig in and you realize every engine room, like the all-stars has that low drum, which is maybe as responsible for the feel of that band as smooth is, you know, like, yeah. and you look at phase two, the way, the, the way Bugsy arranges for that band and, and the drummers he brings in. If you look at Skiffle Bunch, the way Kendall and Mark and Odie write for Jerrion to play. Like, the, as soon as you get you take Jerrion or, or that engine room out of the mix, all of a sudden I realize it's like, oh my God, I need to spend more time with the engine room than, I've, than I'm spending with the leads. Like, that that seems to be the, the, the missing piece of my puzzle anyway. Does anything I'm saying resonate? <laughs> Oh, absolutely. That's the second thing I was going to say. The first one was the strums. But the thing is, the strumming and the engine room work together, right? It, it all makes up the groove, you know. So even, even within the engine room, you see, for me, growing up in Trinidad, I spent most of my time playing pan, right? So the engine room was something that was, you know, they have, you know, they have their stuff sorted. I don't have to, you know. So it's not until I came to the U.S., it's where I was thinking, oh, wait, this engine room, does it sound like our engine room? <laughs> what, you know, and I, I, I had to start thinking, what's the difference, you know, with ours in Trinidad and, and, and the U.S.? You know, and I mean, immediately I could pick up on some things, you know, like, okay, well, maybe the drummer is playing a bit strict or the groove that they're playing is just, you know, sort of um, the starting groove as opposed to adding their sort of element to it, mm. you know, or maybe the iron is just taka, 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 instead of gang, gang, you know, like the iron, you have to have that kind of, I don't, I don't so, so let me see, what, what word am I looking for? It's, it's a messiness to it. Like a lilt. It's like, like it, <laughs> it sort of lilts along. It yeah. doesn't walk comfortably, but it's like right. A, it it's has like a, a to it. exactly, exactly. So it's it's like a, it can't be perfect. If it's if it's perfect, where every strike is is every every hit is hit is hit the same way, then it doesn't work. You know, like when you hear Cliff play the iron, you know, and you were to really listen to him, you would realize that there's such there's such a voice that's almost saying something. You know, because because there's that um, nuance or this this sort of element that that changes and it, it moves with what he feels like, and you know, so so that is what was missing is that sort of I don't want to say improvise, but but it it is kind of an improvisation in a way because I don't think Cliff or any Iron Iron Man would plan, you know, how they go. You know, it's just something that you feel and you do. You know, so so I think it's it's that sort of feel feel 
and something that's sort of ingrained in me you know it's like it's it's something you grew up listening to it's something that's so deeply rooted in in every day here in Trinidad you know so so when so when the music is then played by people who may not have had that same sort of experience growing up they may have listened to other types of music you know they kind of have to learn the the cultural feel of it you know and i think it's that sort of feel and nuance and feeling comfortable enough and confident enough to sort of make those kind of uh changes within the within the engine room because even when you listen to like the low drum you know and it kind of uh imitates like a do 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 you know even like even when you listen to that sometimes they go to think it to think to you know so it, it there's there's like these these small changes that you know that that the whole engine room feels together you know and then if and then if the bass drum does to think it king and they hear the iron kind of respond you know so it's kind of it's kind of a communication of feelings i would say and the only reason that i thought about this is because one time when i went back to trinidad i was already in the us study and i went back to trinidad and for panorama and all stars had an engine room section practice because the engine room has section practice too right <laughs> they stay in a tunnel self section practice so does the so does the percussion and percussion section right the engine room they have section and and while they're doing the section practice in front of the entire band i just sat there and i was like i really need to understand how to communicate this you know when i go back to the us and that is how i just sat there and was just i was so engrossed in it and I was thinking so hard about what everybody was doing and I was like yeah that's what it is it's kind of like a natural communication that takes place it's something that i like i think if i had all the money in the world i would come to trinidad for a year and do nothing but play double seconds then i come down the next year and i do nothing but play tenor bass and then i come down the next year <laughs> and then i would play iron and and i would just like i would go to every band i could to right. be like, I want to see this, and I want to see Desperados, I want to see Phase, I want to see Renegades, and just see how these engine, engine rooms function, because, like, the thing that is hitting me now is that the steel, like, the engine room was the original steel band. I mean, there was no drum set, but it was all only rhythm to right. begin with. Right, you know, yep. It was biscuits, mm -hmm. and when you say dud up, like, that's a two-pitch drum that goes dud up, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like, it has two <laughs> pitches, and it's not even always the pitches of the tune that is being played, you know, and... Right. I think like there's no way in my high school if, if in my high school steel band Joan Wenzel who was my teacher would have said Josh on the iron during the minor section when the leads are doing this part I need you to play more of a cutter part and I need you to, on this section play more straight like I would have had no idea what she was talking about because I don't know what tambo bamboo is I didn't know what bottle and spoon was I didn't know what a foulée part was what a cutter what a boom like any of that mm -hmm. stuff was Mm -hmm. Knowing it now, I, mean, I saw a picture of Smooth Edwards from uh, UTT, like with a bunch of students, and they had biscuit tins, they had the the stalks of yes. bamboo, and it's like yes. that needs to be happening at every steel band in the United States, just so that the engine room understands when they're going to get 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 get. You're actually playing some indigenous music. Absolutely. You know? Yes. Sorry, there's no question there. That was just a. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree with you. Yeah, it, it, and that's what I mean by it's. It's sort of something that's ingrained, right? It's kind. It kind of passes down, and and it has influenced Calypso, and Calypso has influenced that, and you know. So it's it's yeah, it's. Well, yeah. Yuko, I actually have a question for you. Um, one of the other things that blew me away from the ICP competition was seeing the band from Japan. Oh um, right. And I'm gonna be honest. 
I just, when I heard the band, I, you know, I've been working with BSO all week and I, you know, I'm just in the Trini, like, yeah, like this is what, you know, in the phase two plays. the band from Japan gets up there and they play. And I was just like, okay, cool. Like I didn't know anybody, but it sounded like a Japanese band playing the best version of Calypso that they have. And I was like, eh, you know, I was a little cocky. I'm going to be, I'm just going to be honest. I was like, okay, cool. As soon as they got done, the whole bandstand went nuts. Like everybody just stayed there. Like, yeah. And I was like, okay, well then I got to get rid of my own bullshit here because that's like, I'm, I'm in the home of Pan and they just received this Japanese band almost bigger than they received phase two. So I'm wrong about my perceptions here. I'm curious, like, I kind of want to know how, what, why, why Japan? How did Pan, I mean, talk to me like I'm two. How did Pan get to Japan in the way that it did? Even though I am Japanese, Mia is the expert in like in Japan because uh, <laughs> she did uh, her research and field work to write her dissertation on steel pan in Japan. But, you know, I'd say, you know, it's music that people just fall in love with. So in the 1990s, uh, bands like Renegades and uh, Exodus went to Japan and people just fell in love. And, you know, they wanted to, to try it on their own. So people started to travel to Trinidad and Tobago and um, they loved uh, what they did so much that they wanted to try to imitate what uh, Trimbagonians were doing rather than trying to make it into our own thing. Even though, you know, I say our, even though, you know, I haven't been living there for the past 30 some years. Mm -hmm. But how I understood was people from Japan love the culture, the music, the people, uh, the food from Trinidad and Tobago so much that they wanted to try to recreate what is um, happening in Trinidad and Tobago. And of course that doesn't apply to everybody. So um, at least from what I know, a lot of my friends wanted to play like Trimbagonians. You know, they wanted to be able to express. So if you take a look at a lot of steel bands in Japan, they don't use music mm. because that is not what Trimbagonians do. Mm. And when you don't use music, you know, you're able to really focus on the music rather than just, you know, trying to read music so you know naturally it um you know sounds better in my opinion and you can uh focus more on you know how you show you know your performance in addition to making yourself sound good so and you know perhaps me and i were talking about you know similarities between uh trinidad and tobago and japan and we are both island nations you know from the you know eastern asia and from the caribbean but you know there are some similarities, I think. In what? In, uh, yeah. I mean, because I'm I'm from the island of Ohio. We don't <laughs> like what what uh, what. Talk to me a little bit about island culture. Like, what are some things specific to island countries that that maybe I wouldn't understand? I wonder if we have like strong sense of identity because we're not connected to other countries. So there's, I mean, of course, Japan was influenced by China and like now from so many different countries, but we're very Japanese, you know, Japanese culture is very, you know, distinct. And I can say the same about Trinidad and Tobago. Mm -hmm. So, you know, perhaps, you know, just having a stronger sense of identity, but at the same time, you can say, you know, United States, well, 
United States, you know, there's so many people. I, I haven't tattooed, I tattooed Ohio on my wrist. I have not tattooed <laughs> USA on my wrist. And that, that feels like a step. I'm not so sure I'm ready to commit to that. I love my Ohio people. I'm from that. It's the heartland, baby. I'm okay with it. But, but it's not, I mean, I have an identity. I mean, Ohioans, like I live in Connecticut right now. Lovely state. But there's a different state pride from people in Connecticut. I don't, there's not very, very many people I walk around who I see have a shirt that says I'm from a Connecticut, I'm from Connecticut. Like, nope, that it's just a weird, it's a different thing that I've noticed being from a state where like football, basketball, baseball, like Ohio, like we are the thing, you know? And it's like, I'm joking about tattooing it on my wrist, but I really like Ohio. Like it's a beautiful place and it's, it's a different, it's got a vibe and there's people are proud to be from there. And so that's really my only way I, when you say identity, that's really a, my only source of identity is like a state but even that it's like the west part is mountains the upper upper or the eastern part is mountains the upper, upper west part is just flat like it's, it's not like i identify with the hill people or anything from ohio it's just like it's a state but um but musically too i mean it it can i mean me is anything that we're saying mia for trinidad like what are you what are you clocking here in terms of your experience oh, yeah. trinidadian Oh yeah, no, definitely. I agree with everything Yuko just said. And I think too, there's a sort of friendliness that comes and sort of family ties that come with Japan and Trinidad and Tobago. Like for example, um, you know, when I did, when I was doing my research there, if I only made a mistake and stopped in the, while I was walking and looked up, somebody was there to be like, can I help you? Are you, are you looking for somewhere? <laughs> like, oh, no, no, I know I'm going to <laughs> You know, like, there was always, you know, even though Tokyo, Yokohama is the largest city in the world, right? I think so, yeah. It's the, really? I, I think it's the, I think it has, it's the, I think it's, it's populated, like, it has the most amount of people or something like that. It's, it's one of the, one of the highest, and you could, you could probably correct me if I'm wrong. You know, I'm wondering, like, but, like Shanghai, maybe? Like, you know, I'm thinking of like cities like Shanghai, China, but, right. but I mean, Tokyo definitely and Yokohama. Yeah. Has, Tokyo, yeah. Yokohama, at least at one point was the largest, you know, at, you know, most, it has the most amount of people or something like that. And when you think of large cities, you know, I think of like New York, like if I were to stop in the middle of you and look up, like nobody's going to ask me, you know, <laughs> um, are you okay? Are you lost? But then again, there's a different element to that, right? Because I can look like I'm from New York. You know, whereas in Japan, it's very obvious that I'm not from Japan, you know, so but but people were very um, just strangers were very open to, you know, trying to help me, you know, and I thought that's some that's like a small island kind of thing, mm. because when I mean, sorry, not small island, islands, right? So so when I came to, you know, in Trinidad, it's it's very similar, you know, I would say so my example is carrying my pants. Right. So, you know, because, you know, I have my pan and I have my trolley and I struggle to go through doors all the time. <laughs> right. You know, so in Trinidad, if someone sees me going to the door, they'd be like, oh, let me get the door for you. You know, open the door, you know, or somebody might say, oh, can I carry that for you? You know, like, no, no, it's OK. I can take it myself. Oh, let me take it up the steps for you. Oh, no, 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 it's OK. You know, <laughs> whereas when I'm in the U.S., I expect no help. <laughs> you know, like nobody. <laughs> no. I'm sorry. Nobody opens the door, you know, they will see me come in and they, they will go through the door and let it close on me. You know, and of course, there's a few occasions that people will help, but it, it's... <laughs> Have I ever not held the door for you, Mia? Now I'm having, I'm very self-conscious now. <laughs> but, it, no, 
what do you think? It's not that I expected, right? It's just something that's nice. I don't yeah. expect you to open it. You know, I don't expect you to hold it off for me. Like, who am I? You know, like, you know, I, I expect to struggle through myself. But, you know, it's just I notice in Trinidad, I, I get offered more help than I would get offered you know, in the US, just in general, in my general experience. And I'm this and this is me talking from a stranger's perspective. I'm talking about strangers' help. Hmm. You know, like somebody who I have no idea who I am, I have no idea who they are, you know. And they see me in the street or something. That that that's the circumstance I'm talking about. <laughs> that's British influence, because how I understood is like British art taught mannerism not that Americans aren't but mm. yeah but you know British have a certain mannerism that mm, you yeah. mean on Trinidad maybe yeah maybe. but Japan is similar you know I feel as though that people offer to help even though it's such a large city you know and and it seems as though everybody's kind of on their own track because I mean Japan during rush hour is like if you step in the wrong line you can get knocked over right everybody's just walking in, in all sorts of different directions really quickly you know but you can still get help you know if you need it um so so yeah it's it's i and that's how i see some of the similarities between japan and trinidad um uh yuko do you have any you have a question on your mind i have a i have plenty i can keep asking but if there's, um, is there something burning that you want to ask me i don't have a question but you know i just find it really interesting how mia you're from trinidad but you lived in the united states for 10 years and you also you know lived in japan for like a couple months or you know uh so you know your perspective is you know really really unique you know in comparison to many other people so but yeah josh if you have questions uh, yeah i uh, i pardon my ignorance on your your wealth of knowledge about uh japan and and the start of it there me in the steel drum culture there i'm curious as an educator um what were some things you noticed in terms of your pedagogy when you go to when you go to japan is there is there i mean aside from the language difference i'm sure there's issues there that you have to sort of work around but like <laughs> yes what what are some things pedagogically is there anything in, in japan that you teach that you don't have to deal with in the states and vice versa like what are the issues with with the way pan culture has grown in japan that I mean, issues is the wrong word what are some of the things that have manifested naturally uh yeah. after it growing in the way it's grown in japan versus the way this the steel drum education and stuff has grown in the united states i think how japanese panists interpret or understand the instruments is different um like for example um, in doing my research, I noticed that there were like three main ways in which um, Japanese musicians and Japanese panists sort of use the instrument or um, sort of see or have their perspective be very different. So, for example, one of the ways is that you, the way that Yuko was talking about it, the group of Japanese panists who are like, this instrument is from Trinidad and Tobago, and I want to be able to play it just like Trinidadians, you know, and then you have bands like Manish you know, um, yeah. Tokyo, right, where Manish Robinson, who's a Trinidadian, is over there teaching, you know, and pedagogically, he teaches just like you would teach in Trinidad, you know, everything's by rote, you know, they practice for long hours, you know, um, and they're just dedicated, you know, the, um, I remember talking to one of his bass players, they literally sold their car and bought another car just so that they can transport their bass, you know, so... <laughs> And she bought her own base. This is my base, and I need a car that can transport this. So I'm going to sell my car. And get them. You know, so I was like, "Wow, that's a different level of dedication." There, you I know? do not so, make my car purchases based on what this. What you know, maybe I would choose. 
double seconds or something like maybe not, maybe not <laughs> right. 12 base or six base or whatever right no she was dedicated to the, to the six base right so so you have you know that sort of school then you have um the you have um panorama steel orchestra for example who they, this is the orchestra that performed for icp in 2015 where um harada-san who's the instructor He's, even though he does things by rote, some of his, some of the music's written. So some people read, some people, you know, learn by rote. And then it's all about his composition and his feelings. So when they came to Trinidad to perform, they didn't want to be like a Trinidadian group. Their, their, their sort of, um, their aim was to hear that sort of Japanese voice come out. Mm. You know, but the, remember the competition requires Calypso, so it still had to be a Calypso, you know, so they had, to, they had to do that within the realm of the competition. So, and I think the reason why they got such a big applause is also because they're from Japan. You know, I, I think people were just amazed to find out that one, there was a steel band from Japan, and two, wow, this music is so different. And, you know, it's like, it's something that they, I think people just have never seen and did not understand, you know, so it was just like, you know, because even in talking to some of the um, some of my family members who were there, who aren't necessarily fans, they're just fans of Pan, and they're like, "Oh my God, did you see the Japanese band?" You know, after the whole competition <laughs> went by, everybody was talking about the Japanese band because it was like they came from Japan all the way to Trinidad. You know, like they were just completely blown of the situation of it. You know, and then that they were able to play so well. You know, in addition to that, um, but it was different, right? Yeah, I mean, I want to. I just want to make be clear that I, I, I don't want to seem disingenuous when I was saying what I was saying about the Japanese band earlier. Like it mm -hmm. floored me because I think I didn't know what I was seeing, and right, the, way you, right, the, way yeah. you, the way you just put it, because I'm, I'm so, I've known Cliff since I was seventeen, you know, and so in my head it's like, well, that's the way steel bands gotta be, you know, like, like that's, <laughs> I know that's not the right way, but I, in my head that was the first that that's what imprinted on me was Cliff Alexis confusion reggae hearing his panoramas and then going to play with Bugsy. And it's like, and then I hear this band and then you put it perfectly that it was a, it was Trin, Trinidad and Tobago art form with a sort of evolved Japanese voice. Like yes. that sort of thing where you said, like it was a Japanese stamp on it. Like to me, I, that makes it make way more sense. And because my rooting in Japanese music comes from, contemporary classical percussion studies where we you know marimba music is one of the big in terms of like college percussion studies marimba and xylophone music is right. like keiko abe is like our goddess in that world you know of course there's a million different other thing you know cult musics that come from japan but in terms of my experience with it so when i saw it i was like oh like okay all right this this reminds me of a lot of that music that I was playing in college. But if it was Calypso, you know what I mean? Like it had that, that little spin on it in a way that I thought was now as a 41 year old, a little bit more maturity. I can look at and be like, rather than being like all huffy and puffy that they don't sound like BSO. Like now I see this as a natural evolution from, you know, years and years of being dedicated to that art form. So anyway, I just wanted to sort of put that out there. Like, you know, yeah. it's awesome. Yeah, they and I what I admired about them too is that they came, you know, they're coming to the land of Pan, mm -hmm. right? 
not wanting to be like a Trinidadian. And I and I admired that about them because it was, was I think everybody else was trying to capture that panorama sound. Yeah. You know, and they were like, no, <laughs> like we're gonna sound like us, <laughs> you know, <laughs> panorama steel orchestra. And you know, pedagogically, you know, they kind of I've been to their rehearsals, I performed with them in Japan actually. And uh, I, I have to be honest, it was actually quite hard to keep up with them because they were, when I mean keep up, I mean energy-wise, they were so passionate. They were so passionate about playing that their rehearsals were just like song, 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 break, eat, stop. You know, so it was just like going, going, going. And, and I was like, oh my goodness, I'm tired. <laughs> you know, and then when I performed with them, it's like halfway through the, the, I think it was like an hour long, halfway through the set, I was like ready to like pass out on the floor because I was so tired, you know, because we were like jumping and it was just like this, this like so much energy, you know, that they were, I could just feel the love for the instrument, but I can't say that they think about it. I, I didn't get the the sort of impression that they thought about it like, oh, we want to be like, you know, Trinidadians. That's not what it was. This was an instrument that they know is from Trinidad, but they're using it to express themselves, you know. And Haradasan, who's the instructor, kind of uses the instruments and the orchestra to express his music as well. You know, he has a number of records. I think he's played with Ray Harmon, you know. So he has a, a, a unique voice. Um, to the instrument that it sort of resonates in this way that then translates to us outside of Japan as Japanese, you know, and, and I, I enjoyed it. I mean, I enjoyed Sonic too. To me, I was just taking in everything. So, so they're different to me, there were different schools of how, how Pan was taught and, and how it was, um, you know, how the education was sort of passed on or how the music was taught. I don't know, you if you have a different opinion or um, what you... No, no, no. You know, I just find it really, you know, I'm just thinking about how, you know, people from Trinidad and Tobago view different bands in different countries. Mm -hmm. And, you know, me being Japanese, you know, like I'm so happy to hear how well received Japanese steel bands are. You know, sometimes, you know, that's not what we hear about, say, steel bands from the United States. Why do you think that is? Mm. I mean, for the you know, reasons why, you, you know, you explained, uh, you know, really well, <laughs> like how some Japanese steel bands are. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that's an excellent question. I think it has a lot to do with the history between the countries, to be honest. Mm. You know, um, I think for some people in Trinidad, when they hear U.S. band or U.S. anybody, they're like, you know, because there have been a number of people, you know, who would have come to Trinidad and, and take advantage of the situation and, be, and profit, you know, from, uh, you know, our music on, and our arrangements and stuff like that without sort of paying homage to the musicians and to the arrangers and the composers. So... I think a number of people, especially in, let's just say that generation of panis, like Bugsy Sharp's generation, um, you know, that, 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 you know, Cliff Alexis generation, you know, so, so that sort of generation of, of panists have seen 
um, some people come and take advantage, right? So they get very skeptical. And I feel as though that may have passed down, you know, to the younger generations of musicians, um, to this idea that, oh, they're coming to steal it. <laughs> you know, or, oh no, I'm not, you know, gonna deal with them because they probably just wanna, you know, fill their pockets with our stuff, you know? So I do know that there are a number of people who think that way, and it's not everybody. Um, and the people who have met U.S. panelists or have gone to the U.S. or have close ties with panelists who maybe come to Trinidad every year for Panorama may not think that way because they have direct ties to people who are genuine and who, you know, really want to see the instrument flourish and actually pay credit to the people who would have come before and who would have made certain developments in the instruments and who would have composed music, you know. So, so it's, it's I think socially, you know, within Trinidad, that's my guess as to why U.S. bands may not have as strong, you know, of an impact in that way, if that's what you're asking. That's my guess. I can't say that as fact, but that's sort of what I've seen um, just being in Trinidad, not just as a, as a younger person before I got to NIU, but now as a professional, now that I'm back, you know, I've, I've heard people say certain things or, and, and, and it's like, I can't really blame them because it actually happened, you know? So it's like, if, if somebody came and, and burned you and, you know, went back, then I don't want to get burned again. So, you know, you just assume, I think in, in the human mind, you assume everybody who is like this person, you know, will do that to me, not realizing that, you know, everybody's an individual. And just because there are other people from the same country doesn't necessarily mean that that's what everybody is about. Well, I, I definitely, I mean, you could, we've, we've all had sort of off the record conversations about cultural appropriation and, and, and I'll even go a step further and say cultural thievery. I mean, appropriation, I don't know how we all define it, but to me, appropriation has a sort of softer sort of like absorbing of something and, and making it into something to me. And I think it's cause I, I, again, Cliff was my patient zero for me. And if, I mean, you two can certainly, you've been in the room with Cliff more than I have. Like he does not mince words. If he doesn't no. like you, he will tell you and right to your face. And, and I remember my first trip to Trinidad, there was, when people found out where I was from, they were, there was, there was easily two weeks of sort of like, like I knew people saw me and I just kind of was like, I got to shut my mouth and just do like, learn my part. If I can play my part, then I feel like that's currency here. And I have to, you know, I can't fix the other thing, which is my white skin and where I'm from, but I can get better at this instrument and try to show respect that way. And it was impressed upon me at that time in several different various conversations um, that will remain private. We won't go on the record here that there are people who will never set foot in Trinidad. And if they do, it's not going to end well. And I was like 19 years old and I was like, what are you talking about? Like, what could possibly be that serious, you know? And then I learned and through people like Cliff and, and Liam and Bugsy and all these other folks and it breaks, it really at that moment, I don't think I realized it. I'm only, I'm 41 now and I was 20 or 19 at the time. It bums me out because simple acts like that, a simple act of thievery, no matter how small, can set people back 20 years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's, that's the real danger when people talk about cultural appropriation or thievery or racism and all of this stuff it's like one tiny little thing 
This is all you have to do to be not allowed off a plane in Trinidad. And there were many <laughs> tiny things and many large things that happened that I'm that I was made privy to, but it just makes the work so much harder for everybody else. You know, like why? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and anyway, again, no question there, but just sort of agreeing with you that I think sometimes as a as a U.S. pan player, you're not aware. I don't unless somebody like Cliff told me. It's not like you can open a book and read about when the cultural appropriation happened in Trinidad in 1983 or whatever. It's like right. that stuff's not written down in a history book. So, I mean, I guess my question is, how do we, how do we, how do we, how do we fix this? How do we, it, well, and is that our job? Is our job to continue with positive, like what, what are ways to remedy that with some of that older generation? I feel like I remedied it between me and Cliff. I feel like I built, I built trust with Cliff. But it took me like 15 years of of sitting at the that diner in in uh, in, uh, in DeKalb and you know, just getting yelled at, and then coming back the next year and him saying something else, and then by the time we got 15 years in, he's family, you know. But for somebody who just is never going to have there there are people who unfortunately will go through their whole life and never cross paths with the Trinidadian, but will play pan their whole life, you mm -hmm. know. So what? And you got the same question to you, like you were you were married to cliff like you you were you have a more of an inside track here than i do like what do we what's what's the answer if we could if we could wave a wand what would we do well, the first thing i wonder was like do you think it's important to explain who cliff was <laughs> um you know i don't know who our listeners are but you know we uh of course we know who cliff was but you know, I don't know if uh, he was from Trinidad and Tobago, born in 1937, and he was one of the most influential figure in the steel pan world, especially in the United States. Um, and you can Google, you know, like if people want to know more about Cliff and we will, you know, continue to talk about him. But, you know, I completely, you know, Mia, when I, when you were talking about, um, um, you know, explaining like why it is, you know, how some Trimbagonians may look at people from the United States. I just kept hearing Cliff's, you know, voice saying like, yes, Mia, yes, Mia. <laughs> you know, I could just like really hear that. Yes, Mia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? But um, yeah, I've been thinking so much about cultural appropriation and things like that. And, you know, something Mia mentioned during the panel discussion at the NSSBE conference is uh, one person asked, why is it that, you know, well, some people, some bands in Trinidad and Tobago wear flower shirts. You know, what about that? And Mia answered by saying, well, you know, that goes with a theme sometimes. And I started thinking more and more about it. And I thought, well, that is just one of the uniforms or outfits that Trimbagonians wear. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if people from the United States saw that and associated that with Hawaii, which is another tropical island, and thought, we'll go with that outfit because it's tropical. Mm -hmm. And that just stuck with it. And then, of course, you know, uh, like bands like Jimmy Buffett, uh, you know, have that image and people fell in love with Jimmy Buffett and people started to play pan because they saw Robert Greenwich, who is an amazing, amazing steel pan player, arranger, composer, everything, and thought, oh, I want to play like Robert. Okay, so this is what I'm going to wear. And they started doing that and that stuck with it. And just like what you said, Josh, you know, those people may have not ever met Trinidadians, so they may not understand. So what they know 
is what they know. And they may be able to read uh, Google, you know, whatever. But just like what you said, Josh, Cliff, he's the one who changed everything for me, too. And before I met Cliff, well, before I came to NIU and met many uh, friends from Trinidad and Tobago, I didn't know much about Trinidad and Tobago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so there are a lot of people who are like that in the U.S. who just never had that opportunity to meet. So they just don't know. Like they may have not been exposed to what we've been exposed to. It's like, you know, so what, where, we, where do we go from here? Like, yeah. what do we do, you know? I wish I would have been the person asking the question on that panel, Mia, because and I wish I, I want to hear your answer because I, it, the flowered shirt thing is funny because I, you know, I played a lot of steel drum gigs at Akron. Larry was always getting us gigs and Matt too. Like, it was great experience. Like, I learned more about just how to be a functioning musician on a gig, like how to show up on time, how to, you know, be appropriately dressed and know my know my music and all that stuff. But, you know, you're often asked to wear flowered shirts. And there was a point at, there was a point in my undergrad, I think when I came back from Trinidad, where I was like, no, I can't do it anymore. And so I, I, I went like the step over, which was like the Cuban shirt, which was like the little piping, just one color, kind of classy, looking, uh, you know, just very simple. And when I first moved to New York, I got the job with So Percussion. I'm like, I'm playing in this percussion group, but I'll freelance on the side because we're not making any money over here. There's, there's some pancakes, right? And so I, I go to play a wedding in New Jersey play the wedding, wear my shirt, and I get fired. And they email me and tell me they'll never hire me again. I'm like, what? Why? Did I sign out? They're just like, you didn't follow the contract. The contract said to wear a flowered shirt, and I wore the Cuban shirt. And there was a part of me that kind of was like, I felt kind of proud that I got fired for that. (laughs) But but, but then I was like, okay, all right, maybe I'll never work for that person again. Anyway, fast forward, So Percussion's going to Trinidad last year, and Jason, I've been, you know, those guys, they didn't do a whole lot of freelancing like I did in college, and so I'm telling them about this and how I hate flowered shirts. I've been given the hat with the dreadlocks sewn into it and been asked to wear that on cakes, and I just have been like, yeah, sure, sure. When they turn around, I'll just hang it on my pan, and then 10 minutes later, it's on the ground, and then it's in my bag. Like, eventually, it disappears, (laughs) but but I've been telling Jason and Adam and Eric about, like, like flowered shirts, like, ugh. Like, that's just not what people wear on gigs in Trinidad. And it's like, it's not even what people wear around. Like, sure, will you see one? Yes. But, like, it's not. Anyway, so we show, we show up to the drag at finals night. And what the hell is Phase 2 wearing? All flowered shirts and straw hats. And I was like, <laughs> Boogie, one year? You can't just give me one year of, like, orange jumpsuits or something? Like, this is the year you're going to do flowered shirts. And so I had to change my rule, which is, okay, I will not wear, the only person who will, I will make me wear a flowered shirt is Len Bugsy Sharp. He is the only one who I will wear a flowered shirt for. But what was your answer, Mia, on the, on the panel? What, I mean, you mentioned the theme thing, but yeah, did you go yeah. into any more detail? Yeah, well, somebody asked, you know, but people wear flowered shirts in Trinidad, so, you know, what? And, and I said, well, that's because it's a costume, you know, because, you know, for Panorama, what you wear is representative of the music or the theme of the song, you know, usually. Yeah. So if someone is wearing a flowered shirt and a straw hat, it probably has maybe like a tourist theme or um, something that has to do with the song. So it's a costume. It's not uh let me go play, you know, let me go walk down the street and let me go in and I'm wearing a flower shirt. Like that's you know. Yeah, do people have flower shirts? Probably, but you know, it's 
the way in which it has been adopted in the U.S. as this sort of representation of Trinidad and Tobago's pan culture is just incorrect, you know, because, you know, like Yuko said, probably somebody probably just saw, you know, that one performance where they were wearing that one flower, you know, and decided that that's what they're going to go with. Um, and I, you know, even for um, All Stars for so long, just a few years ago, they kind of had on these kind of flowered shirts too. But it was, they, the costuming, I mean, I wasn't part of the costuming decision or, or mm. conversation, but my guess is that it's about a tourist. This is, it's, it's So Long I Ain't See You. You know, the song goes, So Long I Ain't See You, Give Me a Wine, Take it. You know, so it's about seeing some, haven't seen somebody in a long time, maybe because they, they came from away. You know, so the, the idea of the flowered shirts is kind of like a touristy kind of, of costume. You know, it's not something a Trinidadian necessarily will wear every day. It's more representation of, oh, this is what you probably look like if you right. haven't seen me in a long time because I came from the United States. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know kind of concept. So, but whereas other people may have interpreted it as, oh, that's what Trinidadians wear, you know, in Trinidad to play pan, and that's just not the case. It's just costume. Yeah, I was going to, I mean, there's there are people, Sometimes the answer can be, I mean, this is the thing, like, I'm not a parent. Mia, Mia you're, you're a parent now, and I'm sure, you know, you're every, I, I don't know anything about raising a child. But, you know, there were moments in my life when people said, I'm sorry, they've earned the right to do it, and you haven't. Like, you know who can wear a flowered shirt? Robbie Greenwich. Oh, all right. <laughs> you know who's never going to question him about that? Me. <laughs> you know who gets to tell their band that they can wear flowered shirts? Bugsy Sharp. Are you Bugsy Sharp? No. <laughs> Then maybe maybe it's okay that you spend longer than five seconds of thinking about this right. um, before you don your flowered shirt and stand at the at the edge of a swimming pool for somebody's luau party. And guilty as charged. I'm not mm -hmm. saying this because this is something I haven't ever done and would never do. Mm -hmm. If I hit hard times and I needed to pay my rent and someone said, yeah. I'll pay you $400 and, and you got to feed your family, I would swallow my pride and probably do it and probably never tell you about it. <laughs> but <laughs> But like... If you have control over it, mm -hmm. you should think about it. Um, and if you can yeah. get away with the Cuban shirt that with the piping that's just one color or just a classy looking shirt, yeah. push that boundary. It's okay. You know, like, right. you know, sound good, first of all. If you sound bad and you're wearing a flowered shirt, get out of here. Like, that's, that's <laughs> <laughs> you've missed the whole thing. <laughs> right, right. Um, Yuko, do you have any, I mean, uh, uh, Mia, I want to be respectful of your time. We have now stolen an hour and seven minutes of your life. And oh, that's fine. <laughs> time okay. time flies and you've got a child and I want to be respectful of your time. Um, <laughs> okay. um, I just have like, uh, Yuko, do you have a final sort of question you want to ask Mia before we wrap up here? Oh, where do you go? Where do you see, you know, the whole like pan community from different parts of the world going and like being able to work together? What does that mean? Like, is there going to be like the Olympics? <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, I feel as though we've already started, you know, I mean, just seeing um, certain things taking place like um, and in unity. Pan, pan and unity, <laughs> virtual steel band. And I was going to say Pan Ramage too, yeah. you and know, panorama. So, panorama. So, you know, with virtual steel band, with Pan and unity, with with um, all of these different online performances that link people from all over the world, I think it's already a step in the direction of understanding 
uh, pan in different cultures and, and coming together. I mean, Panorama is also um, a good setting because so many people travel to Trinidad for Panorama that they sort of get that experience. But Panorama is heavily rooted in Trinidad and Tobago culture. Yeah. And I think it will be nice for us to get to know what those other cultures are, where Pan is concerned in other countries, mm-hmm. you know, which is why I was sort of so in, intrigued in Pan in Japan, because it's, even though there are similarities, there are huge differences it, with, with Pan in Japan that because of the Japanese culture has influenced, you know, certain practices within the field Pan community. And I feel as though that we should embrace that, you know, it shouldn't be, oh, you're not doing it like a Trinidadian, so you're wrong. You know, I you know I, I feel as though there's this balance that you can acknowledge that the instrument is from Trinidad and Tobago. You can respect it, and you can respect the people. You know, from you can respect Trinidadians, respect Tobagonians, respect um, all the people who came before us. You know, and still sort of um, use the instrument for your creative voice. And I feel as though Japan has done this really well, um, and. Uh, you know, having these sort of um, collaborations, I would like to see more collaborations that could embrace the different cultures of Pan around the world. You know, and I and I know we spoke a little bit about uh, the United States and and how that you know the historically what negative things happened kind of influence the relationship. But I see the relationship going in a different direction. You know, now that we have these online performances. Is there work still to be done? Yes, of course, because we have steel bands that are not acknowledging trying to big at all, you know, or not acknowledging um, or or having practices that is disrespectful, right? It's okay to use the instrument, like for example, in soap percussion, right? I have heard the pan perform these really fantastic compositions mixed with all of these other instruments, and I'm like, that's fantastic. You know, and it's and it's there's nowhere near there's a disrespect to Trinidad. And I feel as though there are some people, the way in which they adopt the instrument, they just don't get to know the country, don't get to know our people, and then they, they do what they think. So then it becomes this cultural appropriation or this cultural thievery or this cultural misunderstanding because they're trying to imitate without getting to understand. I think that's where the issue comes in. You know, but embracing the instruments in a different way and, and all of us getting to sort of know and this beautiful instrument that we love and how everybody's using it differently. I feel like that's where we should we should sort of be, you know, going and continuing with these projects that, you know, are online and virtual. And I hope we could have another ICP, you know, maybe not for Panorama, but maybe it could be something like a composition composition, you know, mm-hmm. where we can really hear the different voices you know, from different countries and how they interpret music or how they'd like to hear music mm-hmm. from on the steel band. Well, I've been uh, with Kendall, we've been doing a lot of listening because uh, the steel band at Princeton is remote right now. And so we've mm-hmm. been doing a lot of lecturing and, and it's like going back and watching those videos of the World Steel Band Festivals, like it's so <gasps> awesome. Like there's a video yeah. of Desper's oh, playing yeah. Barter Bride and you see Robbie Greenwich up there just like, and he's just like looking up at Pat Bishop and he's just slaying and Pat Bishop's up there conducting. And then you see Samaru Jets. It's like four people playing with the sound of a thousand, you know, and anyway, it's just awesome. I feel like if there was like whatever the version of that is that meets the World's Fair, that meets ICP, like that, yes. would, be awesome. <laughs> that would be so, so Um. Well, uh, Mia, this has been, I'll, I will Venmo you 20 bucks for the So Percussion shout out. That was lovely of you. I appreciate, appreciate that. Um, 
but uh, and I hope I don't get a lot of Japanese hate mail for my comment about the Japanese steel band up front. But but I but my but 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 this has been really great. I I have learned a ton. Um, just every time I talk to you and, and, and you as well, Yuko. So I can't wait to keep doing these. Um, uh, what my final question, Mia, for you, and then I'll let you go is what, um, what haven't, what haven't, what hasn't the pan community done yet? Like where, Ooh. what do you want to see it in 20 years? What's the thing? Like if you had control, if you had all the money in the wand that made things happen, what would be the thing that Pan would be doing that it's not? If it was me, I would bring all the steel bands in the world in one place and we all perform together. <laughs> because I've always had this concept in my mind that there should be like a thousand people in one place. Mm. You know, just like, it's just like a, like a panorama practice on steroids. You know, like just, a massive steel like i would just want to know what that sounds like you know i just love to see people interact you yeah. know just you know just like how japanese people come to Trinidad, and, and even though some of them may not speak english it's like you don't need to you know because the the language that's used is through the instrument right that current language so i would love to see that and i don't think that's happened as far as i know where Let's you make have it like, happen. What do yeah. you know? <laughs> like, like like in the savannah or somewhere outdoors where it's just oh, like oh yeah you, well, so... I, I do want to like i do think i do think a little language is important i think you better know the difference between slight pepper and plenty pepper if you're going to be ordering <laughs> doubles in trinidad that's an important you would be on your on your butt sweating and possibly throwing up if you ask for the wrong slight or plenty <laughs> on, on your double so maybe that's a little piece Good of point. advice for folks folks traveling well uh, mia this has been awesome yuko thank you so much um i really hope people get uh get something out of this i certainly i learned a lot and i just one other tiny point that i just want to make when you say when you say when you talk about people from trinidad and tobago you say trinbagonians yes okay and that is the proper like etymological word when we're talking about we don't say trinidadians right you say yeah, Trin yeah. yeah people use trinidadians loosely but i i think what's the better term is trinbagonians because that way you you capture tobagonians within that when you say trinidadians you mean people only from trinidad right, right. but i mean there's kind of an understanding that if you say trinidadians on an international level you probably mean everybody but the best thing to say, I think that's that's encompassing everybody is Trinidadians. I, I appreciate it. And that is something I'm going to practice. I'm used to saying Trinidadian. And every time I do, I always say and Tobago. But like I Trinidadians <laughs> is easier and I, I'm going to practice that. So thank you for that, Mia. All right. Well, uh, Yuko, Mia, thank you so much for your time. This is really fun. And Yuko, I can't wait to keep doing these. These are going to be <laughs> eye opening and, and refreshing, I think. So thank you so much. Thank uh, I you. hope you stay safe and healthy. <laughs> and uh, you too. Good luck with the child, and I hope to meet meet, meet the little one in person whenever the yeah. quarantine and the borders are open. So, yes, yes, thank you so much. This was really fun, and um, looking forward to see so many other interviews. Yes, you know, it'll be fun. This is some really good conversation. All right, well, thank you, Mia. Thank you, Yuki. Yuko, stay safe, and we'll talk to you later. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. second parcel here and it's not ringing enough for me. <laughs>